Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Steve Hughes, co-founder and general partner of Sunrise Strategic Partners. Sunrise Strategic Partners provides growth capital and expertise to emerging brands in the healthy, active, and sustainable living space. Some of their investments include Cauliflower Foods, Kodiak Cakes, and Maple Hill Creamery. I love my discussion with Steve. We discuss the current SPAC market, the history of the natural foods movement, and transitioning from a digitated brand to becoming an omnichannel brand, as well as just how to look at opportunities within CPG in different categories. Really enjoyed this one. Without further ado, here's Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. Good to see you. Oh, it's great to see you. Great to see you. I wanted to start from the very beginning of your career. What was your initial attraction to the food industry? Yeah, it was interesting. I uh, I went to Denison University, and back then you could go straight to business school. So I went uh, straight to the University of Chicago and uh, graduated in 78. And that was right in the teeth of uh, the oil embargo and you know, recession, interest rates were way high. And I had grown up in Baltimore and played high school football with Hugh McCormick of the McCormick family. And I always kind of wanted to thought about getting back to Baltimore. And so options were not as plentiful as you would have expected. I had a couple of good offers, one from Procter & Gamble, uh, one from uh, Liberty Advertiser. But I actually went back to McCormick and it really worked out great. They they started off with uh, a year in retail sales. And that's where I really got the love love for the industry. I was uh, driving a Ford Fairmont in uh, Western Georgia, Eastern Alabama, had an AM radio, so developed a real love for country music. And it was real work. You know, packing out spices, particularly in November, is you go into a store at six in the morning and work all day and walk out at six o'clock at night, you know? And so, but I really developed real love for the business back then. And then I came back to Baltimore, had a wide range of responsibilities with McCormick, uh, and had just a great, a great, and really thoroughly enjoyed my time there. I learned a hell of a lot. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I guess in your career, what attracted you to focus on the natural and organic foods in particular? You know, I got lucky. I I spent 20 years in large cap. So 10 years with McCormick. Mm-hmm. I went to Conagra in ninety in eighty eight and led the team that launched Healthy Choice, and then I took that team down to Tropicana in ninety two and we turned around Tropicana that led to the sale to uh, PepsiCo. So we created a lot of value, but I wasn't holding Healthy Choice and Tropicana stock options. I was holding Seagram and Conagra stock options at the wrong time, and I said, "Yeah, boy, I went to business school, done this twice." So I wanted to look for a company that was big enough I could do something with, but small enough I could have a real meaningful ownership position in. And in 97, I came to Boulder uh, to be CEO of Celestial Seasonings. And, you know, I got here when the natural foods industry was just really still a cottage industry. The first generation founders were, you know, and the, the ones that were in Boulder were like a little, almost a little club. You know, people like uh, Steve Demos at White Wave and... Uh, Mark Retzloff at Horizon, 
um, John Elstrott, who ended up being chairman of the board of Whole Foods. So, you know, I had a front row seat on what has been a fundamental change in the industry, you know, because for, gen you know, for the two generations prior to this, you know, the legacy brands that your parents consumed were the brands that you, you embraced, right? And that was all flipped on its head with the millennials. You know, the millennials uh, have a whole different value structure. You know, I mean, they are very influential not only with their own their own purchasing dollars, but they're very influential with in terms of, you know, how everybody else around them lives. I mean, I used to love my BlackBerry. Love my BlackBerry. I could crank out emails on that BlackBerry like nobody's business. My kids shame you into an iPhone, right? I've been able to see, you know, what start off as kind of a cottage, funky industry in 97, become kind of the greenhouse for the next generation of brands. Because those are the brands that embody the attributes that millennials embrace. No, totally. When you first got involved in natural foods and this cottage industry, did you, did you always have a sense that this was really going to become mainstream or a much bigger market? I mean, what were kind of like the early innings when you were first exposed? What happened with Celestial is we were a public company, so I had a chance to be a public company CEO. And yeah. from 97, I got there in June of 97, in May of 2000, when I got there, the stock was at seven. In May of 97, Erwin Simon and Hain offered $34 a share, right? So it was a pretty short board meeting. And then I was actually going to go back into, you know, I was actually offered the CEO job of Church of Dwight, which is a $2 billion home care business, I guess. But it was in Princeton, New Jersey. And Grace and I are both from Baltimore, uh, Maryland. So I said, okay, didn't get back to Baltimore, but I got, you know, a two-hour drive away. And I came home and, you know, we've been in Boulder now for three plus years. And Grace said, you know, what, what part of We're Not Movie didn't you hear? You know, so I've been changing the zip code. After Celestial, I was CEO of Frontier Natural Products. Uh, I worked with Steve Demos during the earnout uh, with Dean Foods on White Wave. And then in uh, 2002, you know, I, 2004, I really wanted to go back and be, see if I could become a CEO, but I was changing the zip code. So I, you know, the SPACs are all the rage today. I actually did a SPAC in 2005. Took my resume, went to Wall Street, raised $100 million. That led to uh, Boulder Brands, where we bought Smart Balance, Earth Balance, Udi's, Glutino, Evil. It was really kind of during that time. Well, I spent two, between 2004 and 2006 when we did, we actually were able to complete the SPAC. I actually did some high-end consumer consulting for a company called the Cambridge Group. So, you know, you go in, you know, $2, 3000000 million project with uh, Hershey, $2, 3000000 million project with, you know, name the company. And it, we, as you looked at the research, it became pretty clear that their consumers were dying. The, the heavy users of their products were older and fading. And there was this like, you know, explosion of emerging brands that all seemed to be in Whole Foods. You know, I mean, you didn't have to have a marketing budget because if you were on the shelf in Whole Foods, Whole Foods had already blessed you. Right. And so that was really a kind of change model. So it was kind of in the you know, early 2002, 2004, you just started looking at the math of what was going to go on. And if you f look forward over the next 20, uh, from there to like 2025, the purchasing power of the millennials was going to be the driving force in consumer goods. 
you know, their purchasing power was going through the roof, as unfortunately I'm one of them. The baby boomers, you know, begin to fade as a as a powerful force in in demographics. So it was kind of in that period of time I said, man, there is something going on here that is really fundamental because at the end of the day, my kids aren't going to buy Skippy peanut butter. They're not going to buy Frosted Flakes. You know, they're not going to buy Coke. They are not going to go to McDonald's. And so when you start thinking about the most influential consumers in society, it's kind of that we call it end of the third power. It's the millennial mom with money. And now that now they're forming families. Now they're getting further in their career. So they got some real pristine power. I think they're rewriting the rule book uh, on all dimensions, everything from the products you buy to how you buy them. Those are really great points. It's almost like the uh, the industry is maturing with the consumer base. And since the consumer base has a lot more purchasing power, then um, then that industry is just growing larger and larger and larger um, to where we are today. It's still fairly fragmented. The thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, the big strategics out there, the Pepsis, the General Mills, the Kellogg's, right? They all are selling legacy baby boomer centric brands, right? And so that's there's a level of inertia there. And they still have a big say in terms of what gets on the shelf. You know, they're still very often they're the category captains and such. But the emerging brands, and I think over the next five, 10 years, you're going to see a couple of companies in the public space become what I would call uh, large strategics 2.0. They're going to become brand, they're going to become com- companies that become platforms that, you know, in the same categories today that the large strategics are dominant, they're going to become you know, the dominant player. You know, we, we were investors in one company, Kodiak Cakes, that recently sold to L. Catterton. And I met Joel five years ago, and he was doing two share of the category, right? We had dinner the other night. He's up to two share. Twenty. He's, he's gone from two share to 18 share in five years. And he's got clear line of sight. And Aunt Jemima now, Pearl Street Million has gone from 34 share to 21 share. Joel's got clear line of sight in the next 12 months to become the number one pancake mix in America, right? So that's probably a case study for when you get it dialed in right, you get the right brand, the right product, the right price point, blah, blah, all those things that really resonates with the millennial mom with money that, man, big things can happen in a hurry. No, totally. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I'd love to also dive in because I know you kind of switch sides a bit and you become an investor, obviously, and start a Strategic Sunrise. Why did you decide to go into growth equity, launch your own fund and become an investor as opposed to, you know, keep being a CEO? Two reasons. One, in 2005, when I did Boulder Brands, I actually wanted to do this with private equity firms. And I, I went and talked to the, some of the top firms in the space, but they really wanted you to be an operating partner. They really didn't want to set you up so you had the same kind of economic opportunity that, you know, they would have. So I did, we did Boulder Brands, which in many cases was a public-private equity firm. You know, we bought companies. And then when I left Boulder Brands, I had kind of a, kind of a fork in the road. You know, I'm going, boy, I've been a public company CEO for most of 15 years. I was talking to Grace, my wife Grace about it. I said, you know, 95% of that job I really didn't like or I really wasn't good at. Like I'd given the, I gave the Boulder Brands investor spiel over 2,000 times because you always got to keep demand interest in the, in the stock. And so I love figuring out what the next new thing is. I love once you find it, 
figuring out the roadmap for success, getting the right people in place, making sure the right capital is in place. And that's the 5% of the job I really, you know, loved at Boulder Brands. And now in private equity with my partners, Peter Burns and, uh, and Vince uh, Love, I'm really in a situation where I spend my time on the 90, I, 95% of my time goes to the, the 5%, you know, kind of figuring out what the next new thing is, the next big idea on top of a big category, figuring out, okay, how do we take it from, from how, how we scale the business, how we, uh, how we make sure they got the right people in place, how we make sure they have the right uh, capital in place. So, you know, in some respects, it's delayed gratification. I really wanted to do this in 2005. It really wasn't until 2016 I was able to figure out how to do it. Got it. Got it. That's really helpful. It reminds me a little bit. It's it's different, but it reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had with John Sebastiani at uh, when he was founding Crave. And he was saying that, you know, part of the reason why he actually founded Crave was because he actually wanted to go into private equity. And he was too old to, you know, get in like an associate job or, or analyst job. And so all people in private equity said, well, what you have to do is start, is start a company and do well with that company. And then eventually you can graduate and, you know, maybe start your own, not graduate, but start your own private equity shop, which of course he, he did and kind of gain that operating experience. After you left, um, how did Strategic Sunrise actually come together? Yeah, it's really crazy. I, so I was talking to a couple of, uh, yeah, you know, t- top tier firms. And now that I had been, one of my challenges in 2005 was I had, I'd been fortunate enough to lead teams that had great success, but it was all internal innovation. You know, Healthy Choice was an internal mm-hmm. product. The things we did at TROP were extensions and innovation around core orange juice. I hadn't really done any M&A. And so what I was able to do at Boulder Brands is a lot of M&A. So I had a lot more credibility as somebody who was backable. And it's crazy. I, so I was pretty far down the track with a couple of firms, and I get this a call from a headhunter, which okay, and she wanted to <laughs> introduce me to a guy named Jamie Man Mangs at uh, at uh, Trilantic. And so I got on the phone with Jamie, and literally we're finishing each other's sentences. The first call, and it turns out that Trilantic had this model in the energy space of partnering with executives in the space and creating an economic incentive model for those founders that was pretty close to what you would get in private equity. We're like a, a portfolio company of Trilantic, but rather than have the carry, we have incentive units that are tied to performance. And it came together just, you know, karma's a, a beautiful thing. It just came together very easily. Jamie's been an unbelievable partner. You know, they've supported us in Sunrise 1. They've just, we've just signed up for Sunrise 2. You know, we really have a have a great relationship. Initially, they were deeply involved in everything we did because they wanted to make sure we weren't idiots because, you know, they're, they're investing the money that they've raised. But now we've got a very, you know, a really, I mean, a really uh, comfortable, somewhat low touch. I mean, he's up to speed on everything we're doing. But, you know, now that we brought Peter Burns on between the, you know, the, the relationship that we've developed with, uh, Vince and I developed with Trilantic, you had Peter that mix it's a pretty strong hand for Trilantic to play in the consumer space. That's awesome how you three were able to uh, to come together. I also wanted to know, so what is your due diligence process or what do you look for as an investor that is interesting to you? It starts with the consumer and the category. We're looking for big ideas on top of big categories that if done right, will be market share leaders with millennial moms with money for the next 25 years. 
again, let's take Kodiak for example. I met Joel Clark uh, and he was in Costco and Target and he'd been at it for 20 years and he'd gotten to $15 million. And I looked at the first page, the second page of the deck was what he was doing at Target. And I'm looking at this deck and he's got 20 share at Target, but the category is up 20%. When pancake mixes nationally is flat. So I said, Joel, you know, you're bringing new consumers to the category. And so that one was kind of a layup in terms of, you know, conceptually, strategically. And he also is going into categories that the strategics were in, but they didn't care about, right? You don't necessarily want to be the, you know, the brand manager of Anjumima. That would not be a really a good sign your career is going great because it's, it's a category they're milking. They're not innovating. You know, they're just kind of, okay, we got, we, back then we had 34 share. We're making great money on this thing. Don't screw it up type of thing. So a, a disruptor, disruptive brand like Kodiak, you know, nobody's really going to stop them. I mean, I mean, Aunt Jemima still has to put protein in their pancake mixes, right? I mean, Joel's been eating their lunch for five years. So the, the big idea to have a big category and whether or not it's the branding of Kodiak in a category that's not, doesn't see a lot of innovation or, so that's a barrier to entry for Joel. I got the brand that connects, I got innovation, you know, nobody's gonna stop me, let's go. The other thing though is to have real, real insulation. Because the worst thing is the, the, the find a big idea, plow the field, and 20 people can follow you, right? So Vital Farms and Maple Hill and Teton, Waters Ranch. Grass-fed, pasture-raised is really hard, right? It's taken those companies 10 years to get to the point that they can make a sustained, predictable gross margin, that they can price something at a price point that people actually will buy. And so there's a barrier to entry there. I mean, people can say tomorrow, boy, I want to go into pasture-raised eggs like Vital Farms is in. And, you know, good, good luck. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be really, it's not, you're not going to do that overnight. So, you know, we look first for a compelling idea to have a big category and then look for the points of insulation. We also look for the, the point of difference that's going to be compelling to that millennial mom with money. It's got to be shelf self-evident on the shelf. Because 98% of your marketing budgets are packaged. And you got like a blink of an eye to get somebody's attention and connect with them. So those are the key things. So those are kind of like the, the antes. So you go, okay, this, this is something big. This is something legit. It's obviously a great business idea today. It probably is not a great business today. You know, I mean, Sunrise One, with the exception of Auto Farms, you know, the, the last 12-month revenue on these companies was less than $10 million. And so, you know, it's, then you have the real heavy lifting of how do you get, okay, let's get the core product tight. Let's get the supply chain tight. Let's get the, uh, the innovation model mapped out. Let's get the right people on the team. So, but, we, but it, it gets back to, you know, this is an idea that sparks. And can you really convince yourself that, boy, if we do this right, this is going to be a market share leader 25 years from now. And, you know, that, once we clear those hurdles, then we start getting into the nitty gritty of, okay, what's your gross margins today? What's, what's your, you know, you know, where the work can they get to with scale and leverage and all those kinds of things. But it's, it gets down to, is it a, can it be a big enduring idea if done right? How do you assess brand authenticity? Because I feel like it's one of those phrases, words that gets thrown about a lot. 
but I would love to just learn how, how you think about it. We quantify it. We have, I have two guys that I've worked with, Bill Hooper for 40 years, Bill Ashton for 30 years. Uh, and these guys are consumer insight people. And they go in and validate it, you know, with the hardcore user and understand it both in a qualitative sense and a quantitative sense. Then no, this, this is legit. This is legit. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's uh, easier when you have the, the supply chain point of difference. I mean, when you think about Maple Hill Milk, I mean, we invested in Maple Hill Milk. There were six pure play grass-fed dairies. Uh, five, five went bankrupt. Uh, we hung tough on Maple Hill because it's massively better for the animal. I mean, a Maple Hill cow is productive till they're 14. A Horizon cow is productive for four years. You know, we let the calf wean off a mom. An organic cow never gets, calf never gets an ounce of mother's milk. Much better for the environment. It's carbon suppressing. And the chemistry of the milk's different. I mean, you know, 100 years ago, everything was grass-fed, and that was the milk as a species we consumed for 15,000 years, right? Well, the last 100 years, we changed that to factory farms fed grain. And cows aren't yeah. wired to eat grain. And so the chemistry of the milk is different. So you look at all those points of difference, and you go, oh, my God, if we can you – know, once a millennial mom with money gets that, they're going to cross the street to find Maple Hill milk. You know, they're same thing with, you know, Vital Farms. You know, Vital Farms got that bright orange yolk that uh, comes from the way these these chickens are raised and how they're they're treated. I mean, you know, if you really think about it, a conventional a conventional chicken coop is like 60,000 chickens in coops. Right. A cage free chicken is all those chickens in a coop, no doors, but they cut the beak off of the chicken so they don't kill each other. And a free-range chicken is, six, you know, a lot of birds in a house, no door, and the door open. You know, Vital Farms has 5,000 chickens per house. There are no cages. There's a line that the, you know, the chickens come in to lay their eggs. And they are they're surrounded by 35 acres. So they're outside, you know, all the time. You know, and they rotate them around the house so that the grass can rejuvenate itself and the land can rejuvenate itself. It's a completely different model. And uh, again, when the consumer gets that difference, they go, wow, that, you know, that's why I always thought, you know, farm fresh eggs were. So the authenticity lies deeply within the product and showing that on the branding side, what that product, like what you're actually doing into the differentiation and, and if that's resonating actually with the consumer. So got it, got it. That's very, very cool. Love to also talk about strategics as well and how you think about what strategics and the encumbrance are looking for when it comes to you know purchasing, acquiring, um, aspiring brands. Um, and has that changed at all how you invest if there has been a shift in the tide? I think there has been a big shift. I think, I think strategics for a while were just buying things to put in their annual report to, to say we get it and we need, to, we need to update our portfolio. But they're not very good at managing these businesses. They don't have the fine motor skills. And, that was, and they were buying revenue growth, not necessarily looking at the business model. I think now they're very focused on, I want to have the growth, but I want to have a really strong business model. 
because I don't want this to be a project. I, I'm not good at projects. But I think if you look, look forward 15 years, 20 years, the strategic companies we know and love today, I think there will be an evolution to this next generation of CPG brands that start from natural and better for you, not try to retrofit, you know, a company. Because honestly, the algebra doesn't work. You know, I've got a company that's 90% legacy brands. I've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in capital, right, as an industry. So I can make Cheerios, you know, to a gross margin at the fifth decimal point, right? There's no brand I can buy that's an emerging brand that's not going to be 10, 15, 20 points lower in gross margin. So while they can, they can sell the, they can maybe fix some of their revenue mix, their earnings are dependent upon these brands that, that you know, are, are, are going to fade. I mean, I, had, I was probably the first one to run into this. I mean, at Boulder Brands, we had a company, we had a brand called Smart Balance, right? Smart Balance uh, Margarine. It was a natural uh, blend of oils, you know, and it was, well, we bought it, we, we were able to grow it the first couple of years by 30% each year. High gross margin business. It was a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. And then in 2010, on the front of Time magazine, butter was back, right? And the margarine category, we were naturally a natural blend. The margarine category, we lived in a bad neighborhood. The margarine category itself was, uh, was viewed as being highly processed. And we also realized that our business indexed at 165 over 65. So that meant like Campbell's Soup, Every year, you know, they say whenever a widow dies, Campbell's Soup loses 100 cans of soup a year, right? We were losing consumers every year. And we could not do, I mean, it's the only brand in my life, once it, once it peaked, I could not figure out how to turn around. But what we did is we got very much, very aggressively behind Earth Balance, which is, you know, the natural alternative, the organic natural alternative to uh, Smart Balance. And we grew that beautifully. We just couldn't grow it fast enough to offset the decline and smart balance because because Earth Balance indexed to two forty under forty, right? So that's that's really what the strategists have to think about. You know, I've got this massively refined production system making X, right? And I'm running on that today. Brands that are going to decline with the fading of the baby boomer generation. I need to find things that I can run on that production line that the, the millennial moms are going to buy. And I may not buy one brand, like I got one big brand today, I may have to buy three or four brands because the micro targeting of different consumers, you know, someone gluten-free, someone high protein, someone, you know, no sugar, whatever it is, there are probably going to be multiple brands to solve it. But if you're a large cap, your number one thing in life is you got to run those production lines or you got to be, or you got to buy new production lines, right? So getting things that run on those lines that consumers are going to buy, it's not going to be in the same brand. It's probably going to be in multiple brands that target different users, different consumers. I remember you talked about it a little earlier about how you're seeing these strategics 2.0, these large strategics uh, 2.0, where they're going to have to adjust their supply chains to adopt to natural products, not heavily uh, saturated products. 
but adjust to the products that are serving the millennial mom, as you say, and adjust their supply chains to it. And actually then those brands, even though they're probably going to be a lot smaller than the Cheerios, right? Because there's um, a lot of now different subsectors. I had uh, Nick Mandel on from Amberstone. He calls them how they're now it's different tribes of people rather than just one big, massive, you know, audience. Um, but um, the strategics are going to actually have to um, that those then those brands, even though they're smaller, collectively those that th- together those are that's going to become the incumbent. Well, again, and you have to look at this in the context of 10, 20 years. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a baby boomer. Unfortunately, twenty years from now, there aren't going to be many of us left, and we're not going to be buying that much when we when, you know when we're around. And the millennials are, are not going to be thirty; they're going to be fifty, and it's going to be that next generation. The, the Gen X, the, the, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it is, but the reality is the way people can, the curiosity of people today and the ability to get all the information you need about anything in the palm of your hand and your phone is going to make these consumers so much smarter, so much, uh, uh, they're going to, they're going to figure out what fits their lifestyle and they're going to micromanage brands that fit their needs. And that's not... Cheerios, you know, that's not Coke, yeah. right? So it's it's going to be really fascinating to see. I mean, I, I think, I really think in terms of this evolution, we're really kind of in the first pitch of the second inning, but it's going to accelerate because the millennial purchasing power in the next five years is going through the roof. I mean, they're hitting peak earning years. They got families. They're going to be influencing everything with their purchasing power. And the and the baby boomers just make it five years older, and they're also the the, the baby boomers awfully also much more than prior generations. I think much more influenced by what their kids are doing than what they're doing. So it's uh, it's very dynamic time, you know. I think the key is you know when you're thinking about putting your blood, sweat, and tears into building a brand, you know, is it really differentiated? Does it really have a shelf self evident point of difference? And if it's done right, well, can it really be a market share leader with that next generation of consumers? Absolutely. Are there any particular categories within consumer that maybe are trends right now that you actually are not bullish on? Well, I wouldn't say I'm not bullish on the trend, but I'm also not optimistic Those you can make money doing it right now. Take a look at plant-based beverages. I was with, was with Steve Demos in 2000 when it when he was a $100 million business. And he wasn't even national with silk, soy milk. And so then you fast forward. Yeah, in the three years, we, two years we worked together, we went from like $100 million to $400 million. But still, it was all soy milk. Walk in front of that plant-based beverage category today, okay? That category today in the U.S. is $2.5 billion dollars which is pretty impressive. And it, it grows you know, mid-teens every year. But look how fragmented it is. And then look how much capital it's attracting. you got Oatly, who's got a $9 billion market cap. One player in the category has got a $9 billion market cap. So you, you go, okay, I can have a really great differentiated idea in that space. But, man, it is like a, it's, a, it's, like, it's like rush hour in L.A., there are so many brands. There's so much churn. The you know, there's so much. Uh, I mean, so we, we look at that kind of and go, boy. For us to get really excited about that category, you know, 
because it's a combination. There could be a lot of good ideas that could, could have a lot of capital behind them. But in that category, there are just a lot of ideas that have capital behind them. So it's going to be a lot of churn. So you really wonder, I mean, you know, for, you know, for Steve Demos and for Greg Engels at White Wave, as the first mover in plant-based, there was a lot of money to be made. A lot of money to be made. Being the 50th person to go into plant-based, that's a triple shot off the rafters, right? Uh, you know, three-point shot off the rafters from half court. It's uh, it's not going to be so we you know that's why yeah you know, I was talking to Joel Clark at Kodiak the other night and you know he's thinking about going to some other more competitive category. he's got a bunch of categories that I would call high, he calls hibernating categories where you may have a strategic in there but they're they're milking it for cash and then he's got some really great product ideas that work in much more competitive and cluttered categories I said to him I said Joel why would you step over twenty dollar bills to see if you can find a quarter. You know, because if you really think about those competitive categories and you really think about what your P&L is going to look like over the next 10 years in those categories versus going into flour, right, where there hasn't been any innovation in 100 years, you know, can Kodiak take it? You know, that's a billion dollar category. Can you get five, 10 share of that category? You probably can without having to spend a lot of money. So there's a there's kind of that screen of things because, you know, Ultimately, the discipline of the, of the capitalist market is, can you, can you create a business, a business model that is sustainable, that can generate real predictable returns over the long term? And some of these categories are so hot, they've attracted so much innovation, they've attracted so much capital, it's just hard to see how you could be successful. You might be very successful in terms of creating a product and a brand and actually get some scale on the revenue side, but it's kind of hard to see, boy, can you really make money doing it? I'd love to also talk a little bit about COVID. Um, during this period, and as you think about maybe new consumer habits, what were some of your takeaways or observations that um, you thought were quite interesting? First of all, March of 2020, we didn't know if any of our companies were going to survive. Yeah, we had no idea. Yeah, do we have the we have a, the next Great Depression coming? Who knows? So all of our companies, but we also were not had no food service exposure. So we took the point of view, if we're on the shelf, at least in the near term, we're gonna sell. So our company's all focused on making sure their supply chains could keep up, made a lot of hard decisions about things that they were doing that maybe were never gonna really work out, but they had decided they weren't gonna work out yet. They stopped a lot of unproductive things. The first headline that I get, after all the big news you've heard about, large CPGs had just a great year and the consumer is coming back, right? I saw some numbers the other week where if, you know, yes, large cap was up, no question about it, but they didn't hold share. If you look at the share of the market that goes to large cap brands, private label, and emerging brands, they actually lost share. And if they'd held share, it was like to the tune of like $12 billion. So the consumers in a lot of our companies got like two or three years of trial in one year. And with the consumer being at home with nothing to do but cook for themselves, they started thinking a little, little bit more seriously about what they were eating, right? And so that was an interesting one for me is that despite, you know, forced purchasing because it was only, the only thing on the shelf when all this blew up and the strategics probably did a better job of staying in stock than everybody else, they lost share and they continue to lose share every year. So that's one headline. The second headline is the millennials, how, how millennials shop has fundamentally changed. I mean, direct-to-consumer for the total population 
you know, online purchasing of food and beverage went from like 3% to 12% in a year. That probably would have taken five years without COVID. But if it's 12% for general population, and we're still trying to find these numbers, so this is my pure speculation. Right. I bet you it's 35%, 40% for millennials. I mean, I've got a daughter who's 35, has two young kids. She hasn't been in a grocery store in 18 months. You know, she's got, she's got dialed in, you know. I sit down on Monday, I, do my, I take 20 minutes to do my food shopping, and it shows up at 5 o'clock. You know, so I think that is real. And I think that's also going to lead to a whole new way in how brands are discovered. My sense is in Sunrise 2, we will very well end up investing in companies that aren't even in brick and mortar yet, but have created a profitable $15, $20 million online business. During that process of building that $15, $20 million business, they are developing a following of super consumers. Anybody's going to go online and buy $80 with your product has given a lot of research, a lot of thought. And if they like it, they tell their friends. So it's a whole new way of brand discovery and brand launching. And I think it could be much more profitable because the old model is, you know, I go into Whole Foods, I get one region. I starve for a year. I'm successful. Then I get three regions, right? I starve for another year, right? Burning capital every step of the way. And maybe I go with national and Whole Foods. And once I'm in national Whole Foods, then maybe I'm off to the races. So like, like we've talked to like 550 companies at Sunrise. And, you know, my sense is 10% of those will be here in five years. Just because the old way of doing it was very capital inefficient. Very hard to get to and get your message across to the consumer. Now, if you, do, if you develop a really dialed-in website against a clearly differentiated product, you can spend money to attract those people, and you'll know I spent money doing this, and I it worked, and I it made I made money doing it, or I spent money and it didn't work, and I'm going to stop spending that money. You never really had that level of uh, granularity um, in the past. How do you also think about raising capital? Because because the thing is that if strategics want companies that are profitable and aren't, you know, running at a, at a major loss or, you know, maybe aren't, you know, optimized fully for growth. When does it make sense to, you know, stop fundraising? That's a tough one because, you know, you're typically talking about somebody who's been at it for seven or 10 years. So stopping is not, not an obvious, <laughs> obvious answer. Here's a sobering thought. There are only 29 independent food and beverage brands out there that in, in IRI, Nielsen, so consumption data, are over $100 million. So, and that's the sweet spot for the large caps. The third, the herd thins out. There are a lot of companies that get to $10 million. We think that, you know, we don't have the, I don't have the data for you, but my, my sense is there's a lot of attrition between 10 and $20 million. But there are a lot of $20 million businesses that really should get to $100 million. But at that point, you know, the management's exhausted. The founder won't bring in, been there, done that talent, which has its limitations, right? You know, you have to have a founder who can grow with the business, who at least can listen to people who have been there and done it and have, have made all the mistakes. And then you have a whole cap table. I mean, some of these cap tables, it's insanity, you know? Um, and, and then you have, you know, misalignment by the shareholders. So it really, you know, the thing I, the thing that does my heart good is we meet the founder who's doing 15, $20 million. 
you know, is kind of cash flow break even almost because you know what he's that that guy or gal spends nickels like manhole covers. I mean, they spend nickels like manhole covers, and you ask them, okay, so how much do you own in this business? And they say, why? Well, I still own. We own. I own. I own ninety percent of it. Right. That is a beautiful day because that person, if they are someone who will listen to advice. They've got good DNA. They've got good disciplines. They're going to be the happiest person at the closing dinner someday down the road. But that probably of the 550 companies we've talked to, 10, 15 companies fit that zone. Okay. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Professionally, and I even forget the name of it, Tom Peters wrote a book when I was a young pup at McCormick. And call it In Search of Excellence. And what that kind of tell, communicates to you is like everybody is a, uh, a customer. Your administrative assistant is a customer. You know, you give sloppy, crappy communication to people and, you know, you're wasting, you know, it has a series of, of outcomes. But In Search of Excellence, I was, uh, and I'm not a big book reader of business books, uh, but that one sticks out to me. Personally, boy, that's a good one. I'm so much into nonfiction. I'm a big history buff. And, you know, it's really fascinating. I just read a book about Julius Caesar. And I never really realized how... I've read, you know, I've read a lot of American history, and now I'm reading a lot of, like, uh, the whole emergence of, of Great Britain, where it went from tribes to... And it is just amazing how these people did that back then. You know, they didn't have cell phones, right? And to communicate anything took like four months. So whatever you're communicating is probably obsolete by the time it gets there. It's just fascinating the, in, how ingenious, you know, the human race has been when you go back, you know, 2,000 years. And so, you know, that it gives me a lot of optimism about the future. I mean, right now, you know, I think we're all going to have to, over time, figure out how we manage uh, our stimulus you know, input and, you know, right. You know, I mean, just cause you know, you can, you know, you can wear yourself out and freak yourself out. Right. Simultaneously, <laughs> you know, how you get more selective. So the stuff you're really getting is going to add value to your life. I think that's going to be interesting to see how that evolves over the next five, 10 years. Totally. 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 Is there a particular book about Julius Caesar uh, that you just read? You know, you read? it's uh, there is one, let me just, well, let me see. I got, uh, no worries. I got I got it here on my Kindle. It's uh, Julius Caesar by Philip Freeman. It's really pretty interesting because it um, you know because you, you always think about Rome as being this very you know organized buttoned up place and boy the political infighting you know they could teach people in DC a thing or two. It's pretty crazy. So but it just it just gives you some you know it's just, it, to me it's kind of mind boggling just how because these people only live to be like you know thirty five forty years old. You know, how much they accomplished. Right. No, that's so true. It's so true. Um, I'm really, really glad that you uh, that you brought both these books. Um, no one yet has talked about them on the show before. So really excited to add this to our book list. Very original, Steve. Well, Steve, this has been such a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it, Mike. Really enjoyed it. Anything I can do for you, just say the word. And there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that one. It was awesome having Steve on the show. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.